All right, well, welcome to Apologetics. My name is Eric Rehnquist, and Ken Bankston is my buddy right here who's uh, going to do half the study for us. And um, you'll see in your syllabus there's a course outline at the beginning. Um, kind of talks about what we're, gives you an idea of what we're going to be talking about as far as God's existence, uh, the God that does exist as the God of the Bible. Um, Christianity, agnosticism, and, and I'll let you know right now, there's going to be some terms that you may not have heard before, um, and you might never use again, but you'll understand that type of person when you encounter them, okay, after, after what we go through. So um, we'll look at the Bible, its reliability, we'll look at the deity and humanity of Jesus, um, the problem of evil, that's a, that's a touchy one there, especially when you're uh, on the college campus. Um, and then those who have never heard the gospel, what, what happens to them? And uh, at the end, we'll have an open time of questions and answers. Certainly during the, the time we're talking, we can have questions. It's not a problem. Um, but uh, at the end, we just want to leave it completely open, even if it's not even related to the class. I mean, if it's just a general Bible question. You know, I remember last time this was taught, someone asked about the King James Version Bible says in Isaiah that uh, God creates evil. Okay, it actually says that. Doesn't mean that, but it says that, okay? And, and we could actually talk about that uh, at the end, end of the class. But I mean, things like that do come up. Um, on your syllabus, like I said, the last, I think it's the last 11 pages, um, they're, uh, they, they look different than the first part. We didn't get that into the format that we wanted. It just, just ran out of time, I apologize. But if you start numbering, because the last one from the formatted part start, ends off at 18, you can number it if you want to, just in case we refer back to it or you had a question on a certain page, it's just easier to find uh, later on. So just my own personal testimony in regards to apologetics. And apologetics is essentially giving a reason for your faith. And we'll look at a more formal definition here in a little bit. Hi, guys. Uh, grab a syllabus. And, um, We'll look at a more formal definition of, of apologetics in a little bit, but um, the idea is of giving a reason or defending your faith was about six months after I got saved. I was saved in Southern California when I was 15. Uh, beach kind of guy, skiing mountain kind of guy, all that kind of stuff in Southern California is real close, you know? And so um, I don't know if you're familiar with people like that, just kind of kick back, you know, hair was a little bit long. And, um, and then I moved to Burleson, Texas as a 16-year-old. Okay, absolute culture shock. You know, one day in the field house for football, it was rock and roll. The next day, country. Everybody wore boots. Half the guys wore hats. You know, so there's a. Anyway, it was culture shock for me. But I was a new Christian. Even in that eight months that I was a Christian, I was taught very well from my pastor out in California, who went, who goes verse by verse through the Bible, and. One of the things that, that he taught us was that anytime somebody approaches you and says, there's a contradiction in the Bible, um, you say, okay, show me one. So that's how I moved, I had that in my mind when moving to Texas. And so 11th grade geometry class, got out a little bit early, teacher sitting right there, he's a New Yorker, figured, you know what, I'm gonna go share the gospel with my teacher. And so I walked over to Mr. Baldwin I said, hey, Mr. Baldwin, have you ever thought about Jesus Christ and, uh, you know, uh, getting your sins forgiven and all that? Um, he goes, no, I mean, I have at one time, but, you know, the Bible's just full of contradictions. And, of course, doing what I was trained, right? Uh, really? Can you, where? He goes, oh, in Genesis. He says, it says that in the beginning it was Adam and Eve, and you had Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel, and then it says that Cain went to the land of Nod, I believe it is, and found a wife. Where did he get his wife? The Bible's full of contradictions. There's just one example. I'm like, goodness, I don't know, you know, where did you, you find his wife, you know? I, I, I was taught the answer to give, but never the logic behind how to answer such a thing. I mean, think about it. What are your options? Like just take, take a step back, okay, and ask, you, you can ask them, okay, well, where do you think she came from? You know, just logically, where do you think she came from? Your options would be what? Well, they did live a long time. Like, 
Okay. I haven't lived to 900 years, so I'm pretty sure Cain had to wait for his wife. So yeah. That's what I looked into. So where, but where would she come from? Well, Adam and Eve. I mean, the the genes back then were so pure that we could be with our own brothers and sisters. So, in that reason, he had he married his sister basically from Adam and Eve. So okay. That's where. So one option would be Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, mm -hmm. which actually is the answer. You go to the chapter five, and it says exactly that. Okay, I just didn't know and. I was stuck in chapter four, you know. <laughs> and one thing you learn later on is that the Bible doesn't necessarily place things in chronological order, okay? And, uh, but just from a logical perspective, we could have married mom, unlikely, but could have, right? I mean, just, yeah. just I'm just saying options, okay? Uh, or a sister, or a niece, right? right? Or a great niece, or a great great niece, because they lived for 900 years or so on. So, um, but that was like spurred my interest in trying to find answers to these types of questions. Um, another one was my coach. Uh, same thing. One day I went to him and said, hey coach, you ever thought about Jesus? Nah, you know, I mean, I've read the Bible before, but the Bible is just a translation of a translation of a translation, and everything is lost in translation. So you really can't ascertain what the real meaning was from the, the original authors. I, didn't, I just didn't know how to answer them. Okay. So, um, of course, later on, we'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, there are no, well, I, I can't, I take that back. There are, there are translations of translations, but the Bibles we use today, King James, New King James, New American Standard, ESV, and so on, they're actual translations from Greek manuscripts, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. Uh, but I didn't have an answer for them. And so, um, and I got several examples from, you know, just my growing up years, and then later on in life, where I've had people question and not have an answer. But now I'm confident that I do have a lot of answers, not all of them. And I'm sure you guys are going to come up with questions that you know, Ken and I may not be able to answer right now. But in asking them, we grow in, uh, in our understanding. And we'll, we'll find that answer. Well, according to Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the Christian religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. These men left testable uh, information in order to determine if Christianity is true and thus making it stand out from all other religions and worldviews. The study of apologetics seeks to do just that, to show that the testimonies of these men, and for that matter, the entire Bible, you don't have this quote, by the way, I don't believe, uh, is trustworthy, making all other belief systems false by default. And so as we go through, you're going to find that Christianity does stand, the Christian worldview stands out above all, all the others uh, because it's, it's testable. And you're going to see that it's actual testable facts of, of, the, of our belief. Uh, you'll see there a uh, quote from C.S. Lewis from God in the Dot. Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no import importance, and if true, is of an infinite importance. Well, the one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance from C.S. Lewis. Now, apologetics is the reason defense of the Christian religion. In and of itself, it never saved anybody. Okay, apologetics, giving a defense for what you believe in and of itself, never saved anyone. So you're probably going to ask, then why are we an apologetics class, right? You know, um, you know why do it? Uh, but by providing the skeptic or interested party a rational reason for your faith, you chip away at the hardness of their heart, right? You're, you're getting rid of the excuses to where now they can make an honest appeal to truth, okay? Um, at least have an idea, at least have their eyes open to some extent, as well as you're removing some of the blinders that Satan puts in their way, right? Um, we are commanded, uh, I mean, the bottom line is we are commanded to um, give a reason for our faith. You'll see in your notes there, 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. <clears throat> Key words there at the end, gentleness and reverence, right? Because you can come off sounding, I don't know, arrogant, and you, know, you want to beat them over the head for you know, their uh, mis uh, not understanding. But you know what? We were all there at one point too, right? It took the Holy Spirit uh, to rip the blinders off completely so we could understand. So be patient, be gentle with reverence. We're also told in Jude, 
to contend earnestly for the faith that was handed down from the saints, or to the saints, excuse me. Um, now the problem we have is that, you know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. See, mankind is sinful, and mankind willfully suppresses the truth. As Paul tells us in Romans. Sinful hearts and the philosophies of the past and present make the Great Commission seem even more difficult to accomplish. You, know, you had the postmodern views, previous to that were the modern views, then you had the German higher critics who just tore apart biblical understanding. Um, and all those things factor into where we are today. And uh, it's getting, it seems like it's getting more and more difficult to actually tell anybody that there is concrete or real truth, that it can be known. The church, we, the church and world we live in today is in light of the existential philosophers of the 19th and 20th centuries. And a few of the men, uh, Kier, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, you probably heard of this guy, Frederick Nietzsche, right? Uh, or John Paul Sartre, Martin Heidegger, these guys all elevated human subjective experience, right, uh, over concrete facts. I mean, the, the, the experience was more important than solid evidence. And you, you believe it or not, you'll see that in, in many churches, even many Christians today, and I'll explain that in just a minute. Uh, the result of this line of thinking is that everyone has their own experience and that every experience is equally valid. Oh, that may be true for you, right? That may be true for me, but that's true for you. Relativism. Uh, or you may hear uh, some say, well, after all, it all boils down to just faith, right? Um, it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you believe sincerely. Uh, in the end, the idea of showing hard evidence for one's religion, uh, a religious belief, has been lost, and attacks come from both inside and outside the church. Reason has been replaced with experience, right? Um, and you see this, uh, when I say within the church, you're like, what do you mean in the church? When I say in the church, I don't necessarily mean Grace Community Church. I mean all the visible church in the world, right? Those who profess Christianity or Christ as, as Lord or just are a part of a church. Um, and attacks come from one, in the 1900s, and you probably learned this when you studied history, we had this thing called the social gospel, okay, where the gospel that we know today was kind of watered down to where, well, was the real idea is loving people, and so we just want to go and, and we'll start all the soup kitchens, which are, it's great to feed people who are hungry, don't get me wrong, okay, but that's the extent of your gospel, you know, feeding uh, the hungry, clothing those who have no clothes, which is great, we're, in fact, we're commanded to do stuff like that, right, but that was the end in itself in the social gospel era, okay? Not a, actually calling people on the carpet and say, confess your sins, you're, you're sinful, and you need a savior, right? Um, in the 20th and 21st century, you had the prosperity gospel. It's, I mean, it's still alive and well today. All you gotta do is turn on TBN and some of these other channels where people are telling you that God wants you healthy and wealthy. Really? I think the Apostle Paul would differ you know, especially with a thorn in the side, right? Or they'll try to sell this, this Jesus that is rich and had palaces and wore robes, you know. Um, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Um, and again, feeling and experience has been placed over biblical revelation. Um, here's a quote from Hank Hanegraaff. And are you, if you're familiar with the Bible Answer Man, he now... it's since, well, gosh, it's been 22 years now since Walter Martin passed away. Um, and Walter Martin, I have his book in the back, Kingdom of the Colts. Um, Hank Hanegraaff took over for him on the radio broadcast, The Bible Answer Man. And he wrote a book, stirred up a lot of controversy um, back in the early 90s called Christianity in Crisis. And again, this is focusing on attacks from within the visible church. Here, listen to this. The true Christ and true faith of the Bible are being replaced rapidly with a diseased, with diseased substitutes offered by a group of teachers who belong to what has been labeled the faith movement. 
This cancer has been triggered by a steady diet of fast food Christianity. Uh, a Christianity long on looks but short on substance. The dispensers of this carcinogenic diet have utilized the power of the airwaves as well as a plethora of pleasantly packaged books and tapes. And tapes, you can tell it's older, right? Because you would say CDs or MP3s today, right? Um, to lure their prey to dinner. The unsuspecting have been called not to love the master, but to love what is on the master's table. So within the church, we have attacks against biblical orthodoxy and reason. And we also have that, obviously, from outside the church. Where do they come from? Well, you have direct assaults. And you'll see, you have a couple blanks there. The first, if you didn't get the blanks in the first one, it was social gospel, prosperity gospel, um, feeling and experience over biblical revelation was the third one. And then the attacks from outside the church, the direct assaults come from the atheists and agnostics. And, and Ken will touch on the, the difference there. Um, and then we have indirect assaults where it's not actually going after the God of the Bible necessarily purposely, but they're ignoring uh, biblical revelation and even natural revelation. And that is uh, macroevolution, those holding to the idea of uh, one species changing into another. All right, not micro, which is changes within a species, okay, as well as big bang theorists. And I think Kim will touch on this too that you don't have to be afraid of the big bang, big bang idea. I mean, obviously, the expanding universe is going out, it had to be together at some point in time. So, for God to actually do it, uh, it shouldn't make you worried uh, as far as your faith. Um, here is one well known atheist who just recently passed away, um, Christopher Hitchens. He says, thus, though I dislike to differ with such a great man, Voltaire was simply ludicrous when he said that if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. That human invention of God is the problem to begin with. And so uh, he's just one of the very, uh, uh, what was it, Madeline Murray O'Hare, I think was one of the other ones, that just very outspoken atheist, I mean, attacking the concept of God and, and doing it publicly. So, um, but there is a solution uh, with a combination of solid biblical and theological training, basic reasoning from logic and the evidence we will discuss today, you'll be able to provide reasonable answers to anyone who raises a question or attacks the Christian faith. We are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We must make the mind the prime factor of any argument, with especially outside the church, but certainly within the church. That's one thing people forget, right? That's part of our worship to the Lord is to use our head, okay? Not just our feelings, not just our experience. The experience of feelings must be governed by uh, some form of truth, which of course is our Bible. Um, if we simply leave it to a given faith, then there's no way to show that one idea or worldview is superior to any other. You've got to have hard facts. Um, you'll see that nearly 75% of Christian young people walk away from the church after high school. One of the key reasons they do this is intellectual skepticism, the attacks on the mind which they're not using in the first place or being taught to within the church. And Ken is going to tell us how we got there. Good morning. We're on page three. And uh, I think I'm even in worse shape than Eric is. Eric didn't get his coffee. I didn't get any sleep. So I'm having trouble reading at this point. So we'll see if I can actually speak. Um, how we got here, how we got that quote that he just read, that 75% of Christian young people walk away from the church after high school, how we got there, where our culture is now. I'm going to spend just a few minutes chronicling that. Less than one half of 1% of Christians between the ages of 18 and 23 have a biblical worldview. 0.5%. Two studies conducted both by the Barna Group and USA Today found that nearly 75% of young Christians walk away. And these are people that are in our youth groups right now. 
they walk away from the church when they get out of high school. Get out of high school, they get on their own. They never darken the doors of a church again. Um, that's an epidemic. And this is one of the reasons uh, that I'm so passionate about apologetics. And it's not just about the youth, it's about a bunch of people being lost. 9%, that's the number of, of adults that have a biblical worldview. 9%, which is very scary. Our current school system, our laws, our entertainment, our consequences of philosophical and scientific modernity. We reasoned our way out of a need for God and a belief in the Bible. And then an influential few decided that we as a culture no longer wish to be repressed by a heavenly dictator. And given the accumulating evidence against the need for such a being, they put laws in effect that would eventually free America from its bondage to superstition. We are in that free fall today. Science became our truth and our stomach became our God. But today, science is telling a very different story. And I'm going to do a little science in here. Now, it's, I don't want anybody to have a misinterpretation of the fact that I'm not the science guy. I'm not the brilliant guy here. And that's going to be part of the purpose <coughs> for this little talk. You don't have to be, right? But we're going to talk about a little science here. And right now, um, science is proving God in physics and cosmology. Um, in fact, Eric just mentioned you don't have to be scared of the Big Bang. I would say you need to go out and champion the Big Bang because the Big Bang, as you're going to see, absolutely proves that there is a God. But cosmology, archaeology, history, and textual criticism every day, more and more, is proving the Bible. And we must be ready ourselves uh, to give a reasoned defense for the hope that lies within us. So we need to learn this stuff. Christianity is not first about a relationship, as we've so often been told. How many times have you heard that? Christianity is about a relationship. There's nothing wrong with a relationship. I'm not putting that in any way as a, in a bad light. But Christianity must be first about truth. If you have a relationship with a being that doesn't exist, what are we to do with you? And that's what a lot of people are, are thinking about Christians today. Why? Because they have your truth, they have their truth, you have your truth, and you believe in something that doesn't exist in their mind. 2 Timothy 4.3, you'll see there at, toward the bottom. For the, time we, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. And here's the charge, I would say, uh, for Timothy, and I would also say for you as well. Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Now, one of the things that I love about apologetics is it allows me to enjoin people in a conversation about God anywhere I am, in a very non-threatening way. If I come up to somebody in the, in the way it's usually done today, and I say, well, let me tell you what God has done for, my, for me in my life, then I have a story, right? But the Muslim guy down the street has a story, and the Mormon has a burning in his bosom. If all we're relying on is our subjective experience, right, then there's no rational foundation for my faith that's any greater than the rational foundation for the person who believes absolutely nothing. I could believe that a unicorn created all of this, right? If I can't prove anything, then how is my, how is my belief any more substantial than the guy next door, right? So the aim of our apologetics, you see at the bottom of your page, number three, the aim is to make more firm our faith, and that's for us. To better evangelize the lost, and that's for them, and to worship the Lord with all our mind. And that's for him. By the way, all of this is for him. Witnessing today is usually about sharing our story. I touched on that. And what we're going to do now is give you some facts to back up your story. The American public is very cynical of stories today. You, you can't even believe your eyes anymore. You can see virtually anything come to a screen in 3D today. And so if you're coming to an argument and all you have is your story, you're coming to a gunfight with a stick. Uh, 
Now what we're going to do is I'm going to try to employ the KISS method. For those who don't know the KISS method, that's an acronym for Keep It Simple Stupid. And uh, we're going we're gonna to keep it simple stupid because stupid is where I live. It's where I'm comfortable. That's my home. All right? We're also going to keep it simple stupid because I, I do want to impress upon you that you don't have to be a physicist or a nuclear scientist, you don't have to be a theologian with a PhD to be able to, to be able to demonstrably win the debate in the culture. Right? It's not that hard. There's some basic truths that you're going to need to get. And some of these words, as Eric said, are going to sound a little unusual probably to some of you guys. And raise your hand. Stop me if you have a question at all about anything I've said, and Eric too. Um, what we want you to understand, though, is these arguments are not that hard. The words, it's a different jargon. If you, if you were going to take on any different uh, career path, you would notice in that career path they have different words, and you're going, hold on, let me get this figured out. But once you figure out the words, all of a sudden it goes, oh, well, this is not that hard. And that's the way it is with everything that we're going to cover today, I think. Um, now, the history of knowledge and the decline of Christian influence. For 1,700 years, Christianity dominated the progress of knowledge in the Western world through philosophy, science, literature, the arts, and theology. In the 1700s, um, the philosophy of David Hume, called empirical skepticism, brought into doubt the reliability of, and I think this is one of your things here, the reliability of physical knowledge. And specifically, David Hume attacked the law of cause and effect. And just a brief thing, what he said was, we can observe cause and effect. You know, I, I can see that when I push this, it moves. Now, this is what happens when you spend too much time doing philosophy. I can see that when I push this, it moves. But I can't guarantee that me pushing this moves this. Right? Now, that's just kooky, right? But that's, that's, that's what he said. And it started something. And Immanuel Kant came after him. Brilliant man. Um, and for fear that the law is cause and effect, is this right here? This right here controls science. This right here controls knowledge. If, if the law of cause and effect doesn't work, then you can't tell the difference between a chair and a donkey, right? You can't tell the difference between the word A and V. And if the laws of cause and effect dies, science dies, knowledge dies, and Immanuel Kant was afraid that if he didn't step up and do something, we were going to lose the culture, right? I mean, Kant was a Christian. But he was, he was very painfully wrong on a couple of things. Uh, and what he tried to do was unite the philosophies of rationalism and empiricism, and unfortunately the result was a cataclysmic watershed to Western thought. Kant sought to elevate the knowledge of non-physical understanding like faith and reason so that it would be unassailable. You, you wouldn't be able to attack it. So what he said was you can't prove the things that are not physical. In other words, you can prove this is moving but you can't prove why it's moving and that's okay. You just have to have faith that it's moving is what he would say. You have to have faith that God is even if you can't prove it. Right? And what happened was that Kant's philosophy because of Kant's philosophy, there was a widespread scorn on the intelligibility and credibility of Christian thinking. Kant's philosophy ended the reign of, Christ, of the Christian church in every field of knowledge. This, and In fact, if you study philosophy, you'll find out all the way up until Immanuel Kant, the greatest concern of philosophy was what is the unity behind the diversity. So we have a bunch of different things out here and they had to come from somewhere. What is that somewhere? What is that something? And that was the main focus of philosophy. And that one thing was God. And all the philosophers back from before Socrates were trying to find out exactly what or who God is. Right? And then after Immanuel Kant, what's important now is how do we take care of each other? How do we love each other? What is the best way to proceed from here as human beings on a spinning rock? That was... That's the graveyard that was brought by Immanuel Kant and David Hume. 
Uh, this accelerated an already growing movement in theology called neo-orthodoxy, and Eric touched on that. He was talking about the higher criticism of Germany. Um, this movement believed that the Bible had a core message that was from God, but that many of the truth claims, those that could actually be proven or not proven, um, were not part of God's message, and therefore, you know, were fallible or not reliable. So, if if Luke gives you a description of a town and where that town was and what time these certain leaders uh, were in power in that town. We don't have to believe that. That's just extra. That's what the, that's what the neo-orthodoxy would say. That, that's not important. What's important is that God loves us and he saved us. Now you have, you have any, you cannot feel what that does to the truth of the, of the Bible. If all of a sudden part of it's true and part of it's not, we can't trust this, but we can trust this. All of a sudden you can't trust any of it. Right? And, and the culture was smart enough to see that. And they were like, well, why are we buying into this message? Then in 1801, a brilliant French mathematician and astronomer named Laplace, um, built on the work of Isaac Newton with a multi-volume tome he called Celestial Mechanics. In it, he theorized how the universe and planets were formed, called the nebular hypothesis, and how it's maintained by gravity. Now, unlike Newton, Newton talked a lot about the divine cause and the divine in, uh, main, the, the divine maintenance of the universe. Laplace did not. In fact, this interesting story, Laplace uh, sent his books um, to Napoleon Bonaparte, who was a believer, and he sent them there uh, to get accolades from the emperor, probably. And it worked because the emperor invited him to the palace. Now, the emperor had also read uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who was a Christian as well. And he said to Laplace, he said, you know, I've read Newton, and over and over again I see that Newton uh, mentions the divine, and, and I see no mention of the divine in your work. And uh, Laplace said, sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. This was the Enlightenment period in Europe. Science was increasing man's knowledge exponentially, as it is today. And more and more, man was able to detail the causes and factors in this physical world without the need of a divine explanation. Then, in 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species, which attempted to prove that life was not created by God, but instead was the product of evolution. This was the final straw that gave people the freedom to live however the heck they wanted to live. Why do I painstakingly take you through the downfall chronology of Christian thought? Because I think it's important that you see the place Christian thought once held in the world. I think it's important that you see where we are now and the questions and problems uh, that brought about the decline of Christian influence. And how the culture is influencing Christianity today as opposed to the other way around. And I think it's important that you see that if we don't take, don't retake the culture, imagine how lost the person you work with is going to be when all they have is you and you're not feeding them with anything substantive. You're telling them about your experience. The neighbor you have down the street. And I mentioned before, one of the main reasons I love apologetics is it allows you to step into a conversation that takes you to evangelism and it allows you to do it so easily and so unthreatening and the reason is well actually let me let me pause just for a second to say no let me go ahead Romans 1 18 through 20 and Eric touched on it the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain within them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, so that man is without excuse. The wrath of God is being poured out on people that are suppressing the truth, and that truth that they are suppressing is the knowledge of God. The reason apologetics works so well is because every single person out there, your neighbors, your friends, the people you work with, they know that there's a God. Christopher Hitchens, who recently passed away, devout atheist, 
angry atheist. His mantra was, I don't believe in God and I hate him. That man now knows the truth. But the truth is, he knew it already. That's what caused him to be so angry. He had the recognition that he was guilty and accountable before an almighty God. And every single person you come into contact with has that same understanding, there is a God. But, they, but many suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And because of that, they are without excuse. Now, what's it mean they're without excuse? They're without excuse for what? Well, they're without excuse for suppressing the truth, but it's not just suppressing the truth. See, the demons know that there is a God and they tremble. And they're still in conviction. Once you come to a knowledge of who God is, you have to surrender. And if you don't surrender, you're without excuse because God is saying, I have given you sufficient evidence. You know I'm here. Every one of you, when you come into contact with someone, you can walk up to them and you can honestly walk. I, I do this all the time, by the way. I've done this in jack-in-the-box, waiting in line. Do you believe there's a God? I, I've never met this person before in my life. Imagine doing that, just walking. Do you believe there's a God? I'm not, I, don't, I don't carry tracks around. I'm not an overly religious person. It's a conversation everybody wants to have. They really want to have that conversation. And I, I think it's great if you can develop a strong relationship with someone and out of that relationship they see your love for God and they want to know what's different in you. But I want to ask you how many people, honestly, that you've impacted that way? How many people have you been such a godsend to them that they came to you and said, why are you so different? Because I would submit to you, it's probably not that many. And I'm not making fun of you guys. It's not that many for me either. But I will tell you that it's really easy to walk up to somebody and say, do you believe there's a God? And people will typically do this. They'll go, yes or no. And they get this kind of careful standoffish look on you. And and instead of going, well, let me tell you what God's done for me, or let me tell you what God said in the King James Bible, and you're going to burn and go to hell, sir, if you don't answer this correctly. Instead of that, you just say, why? No, I don't believe there's a God. Why? Yes, I believe there's a God. Why? And you let them talk. It's that easy. All right. So, so at the bottom, you have a question. So why do smart people disagree? I think throughout this class... Um, as you start to hear more and more, especially from the science, you're going to be asking yourself that question. You know, it, it, little Kenny, if what you're saying is true, and it's so obvious, then why do so many smart people disagree? And I think you're going to find out the reason they disagree is they don't want to surrender. Um, so now we're on page five. Uh, So somebody give me a reason to believe in God. This is not rhetorical. I'm asking for some help. Somebody tell me, if you were to walk up to somebody in the street and they say, I don't believe in God, what would be your reason to prove that there is a God? The order of the heavens, everything's in balance. Right? Very good. And, and that is what, what Paul said in, uh, well, obviously it's in the Psalms, but right there that I just quoted you, Romans 1, 18 to 20, I think it is, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made. The universe itself declares the glory of the Lord, Right? We're going to talk about the cosmological argument now. That's a kind of a big word, but it's a really simple word, too. It just means the cosmos, all that's out there in the universe, right? And ology just means it's where we get our word logic. And uh, it's the study of the cosmos. And the cosmological argument is the argument that leads back to God from the study of the cosmos, right? There's a really simple one. You look around at everything and you go, well, here's a bunch of everything. And everything was either created by something or nothing created everything. 
Well, how plausible is the second one, right? I mean, how much of an idiot do you have to be to go, yeah, probably something created it, right? And we're going to get into the counter-arguments a bit, too, so I'm not, I'm not oversimplifying it. That is a very simplified look at it. And the, the cosmolo cosmological argument proper, the, the, the full one, is, is also very simple. It goes something like this. If anything exists, you or me or even just the illusion of you and me, if anything exists, necessarily God must exist. And it is the case because of this. Whatever exists has only three possible ex explanations as to how it came into existence. Either it has always existed, something created it, or it created itself. Now one of those is manifestly absurd. Which one would that be? It created itself. Now why is that crazy? Why is that wrong? Hey, it's very nice. Nothing comes from nothing. That's the sound of music. My wife is always quoting to me. Ex nihil, oh nihil fit. Um, in order for it to create itself, it would have to be before it was. It would have to exist while it at the same time didn't exist, right? So you're only left with two possible solutions to the conundrum as to how anything got here. Either it, create, either it was always in existence or something else created it. Now, if C was created by B and B was created by A, eventually you get to the end of that line, right? And you have to go, well, what created A? I better look back at my notes because I have no idea where I'm at. Um, nothing, uh, all right. Therefore, something had to pre-exist the first thing created. We are left with no other choice but that the something must have always existed. Something had to be eternal. Something has to have the power of eternal existence. Otherwise, nothing would be. Let me pause for a second here. Does anybody have any questions? Is this clear yet? Because this is really important. Anybody have any questions about that? You need me to repeat it? You do? What was A and B? A and B? Um, simple. Oh, either everything that exists was created by something or nothing created everything. That's A and B. It was created by something or nothing created everything. So everybody's clear on the cosmological argument? All right. Please don't be afraid to ask questions. So now... We have to figure out what it is that's eternal. Atheists would say it's the universe itself. Christians or theists in general say that it's God that's eternal. But everybody agrees that something has to be eternal. By the way, this is not new. This is not something I dreamed up you know, in the closet before I came up here or anything. I mean, they were thinking this. It, Thales was 585 BC and he'd already figured this out to some extent. It wasn't quite as sophisticated of a syllogism as this, but he'd already figured this out. This has been with us since way before, I mean, well obviously the Jews had it at the beginning, but the Greeks, you know, long before recorded history had already figured out to some extent these truths. I believe this is exactly what God was communicating to Moses from the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God his name, he replied, I am that I am, the Tetragrammaton. Now, God could have said, my name's Tom, right? I mean, he's God. He can name himself whatever he wants to name him, right? He can, he can say whatever he wants. But he said, I am that I am. And I think he did so. For a reason, he wanted to make a point known in scriptures, Old and New Testament. God refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I think God is trying to tell Moses and he's trying to tell us that he can't be defined. You can't call him Tom because Tom doesn't reach to his level, right? He is, and that's the point. He just is. 
He is the thing from which all other things come. And that's what he's leading at. Now, the ancient Greeks, I mentioned them just a second ago, they also came to the conclusion uh, that whatever started the universe must have the power of eternal existence. What's more, long before Newton's first law, uh, or the law of motion, they noticed that things were moving. The wind was moving the trees. The, the water was babbling in the brook, whatever that means. And stars were moving in the heavens, or so it seemed, from their vantage point. The whole universe seemed to be in motion. Given that, they deduced that the Creator must not only have the power of eternal existence, but he also have, must have the power of motion because something had to get the universe started. Aristotle called him, the creator, the unmoved mover. So, let me get this chair for a second. Put this right here in the middle. All right. How long will it take our chair here to move from this end of the room to the back of the room? Forever. <laughs> forever? And if we gave it forever, would it, would it be back there then? No. No, it would not, right? Because it doesn't have the power of movement, right? It's an earthquake or a tornado. So it needs something. That's right. It needs something to act on it, right? All right. So, now how long is it going to take? Yeah, because I got the ball here to act on it, right? So, oh, well, let me put the ball back here. Okay, now the ball's here, ready to push it to the back of the room. How long will this take? Long time? If we gave it a long time, would it be at the back of the room? No, it wouldn't be at the back of the room. You know why? Because neither one of these things have the power of motion. Now, this is interesting, too. If you look at uh, some of the cults, uh, uh, they would say that, that God was once like we are. He was a man. And he became God. And so we, too, can become God like him. And I've had several conversations with these people. And one of the reasons they say this is... is you can't get the non-physical to control the physical, right? So you have this ethereal little spirit over here. How is that, a, how is that spirit going to push the chair? It's not possible is what they'd say. I would say that's the only possible way it could happen because this ball is never going to move this chair, right? But here I am moving the chair. And you would say, yeah, but you're physical. You have a body and you're moving the chair, right? Let me ask you this. When I... Raise my arm up. What caused my arm to raise up? You. Me? What am I? A physical being. I am a physical being? No, no, no. I am a soul housed in a physical being. My brain sends electrical impulses to my deltoid to say, go up. But where does that impulse come from? It doesn't come from my brain, which is a machine which is physical, comes from my mind. It comes from me, who I am. One day I'll die, and my body will go in the ground, but I myself live on. And when people come to my funeral and they see the body, they don't think I'm still in that body. They know that I'm not there. That's why they call it the body, right? They don't call it kin. They don't say, hey, go up there and witness the kin. They say, go up there and witness the body. Now, oh, put that up there, because I can use the chair again. Sorry, this is my first time doing this. Um, so, if the universe is eternal and had been eternally at rest in the same way as this chair, would it not be still at rest? If it's eternal, if the universe is the thing that existed forever and it existed at rest like this, would it not still be at rest? So, the question is, and this is the question the Greeks were asking, who moved? 
Generally speaking, the Greeks thought that the universe was eternal. And, and actually, most of the ancient peoples did, with the exception of the Jews. They thought that the universe was eternal, but God started it moving, right? So they had to postulate a God of some sort, some sort of a God. Now, suppose for a second there is no God. Let's see if it's in here. Let me just make sure. Okay. Suppose for a second that there is no God. Suppose that it is the universe that's eternal. Suppose that the chair represents the universe. If we left the universe right here completely alone, which would be easy to do because it's the universe. That's all that there is, right? At this point, we're not, we don't even exist yet. There's just the universe. How long is it going to take it? I want everybody to answer me to get to the back of the room which is evidently some other part of the universe. We're not going to go there because it hurts my head. It's never going to get there, right? Never. All right. Um, imagine. Wait a second. No, I'm coming back to this. All right. Imagine that this basketball is the earth. Now, we see things moving in the universe around us because we're on the basketball. This is what the ancient Greeks thought. They thought that the universe was eternal, which means it was unchanging, right? If, if something exists forever, then it can never change. That's, that's their idea. So the universe is eternal and it's not changing. It's just spinning around us. That was their idea. And so we look at it, and from our vantage point, it looks like the universe is moving around. So their idea was the universe is eternal, and God got it moving. But then Einstein comes in and screws everything up. And actually, it, it was a little bit before. It, was, it started with Copernicus in the 15th century. Galileo, Copernicus, several people came to the conclusion that it's not the earth in the center and the universe spinning around it. But the whole universe seems to be in motion, including the Earth, right? That was the difference in geocentricity and heliocentricity. But then, Albert Einstein in the 1900s really messed things up with his theory of relativity. Now, have we moved over to page six yet? Yes, okay. I'm to with y'all. Because I put these little blanks in here, and I'm not going to remember where they are unless I do. All right, so give you the first one. The theory of relativity proved that the universe is expanding, right? Albert Einstein published his theory of relativity, and in the theory of relativity, he posited that if you had a massive body, so imagine this is a, uh, a planet, right? You have a massive body in space. He posited that because the gravitational force of this body, the space around the body would curve, right? Now, I don't want to make it sound too difficult. It's not that much. So you got space all around this. Well, he's saying that this is like a magnet pulling the space to it. Anything that's in the space, the debris, whatever's there, helium atoms, whatever, you know, whatever's out here, it's going to be pulled around this ball. And because of that, it's going to curve space around it. And he said, well, everybody out there has some mass, so everybody out there is going to be curving space. And what he figured out was if everything is curving space, then the universe should collapse on itself. But it doesn't. And his math proved that it didn't, down to five decimal points. It proved that the universe is not curving inwards. In fact, it's expanding. Now, he didn't really like that idea very much. Einstein uh, was not a Christian. Now, I, I don't know whether he was a believer or not, but he did not, in God, but he did not like the idea that the universe was expanding. And the reason he didn't is because if the universe is expanding and you turn the cosmic clock backwards to where it starts retracting, eventually you get to a beginning. And all of a sudden, starting in the 1900s, we had proof that the universe was not eternal, that it had a beginning. 
and it scared a lot of people, including Einstein. So Einstein developed something called the cosmological constant, which was a math trick. He actually multiplied by zero. Most first graders are aware you can't do, and he knew you couldn't do it, but he didn't like what the result of his own theory uh, was. And so he comes up with this force that though uh, it, it, that, that made it look like, well, what it did was it, it made the universe constant again to where it wasn't expanding. So his math said it expanded, and he didn't like that. So he came up with another little additional field problem that made it look like it wasn't expanding. Now, this became really interesting because about the, just shortly after this, a guy named Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope is named after him. Frederick Hubble, I think it is. Hubble discovers something called the red light shift. Edwin Hubble. There you go. Now, the red light shift is, I'm not going to go into all of it, but what it did was improve, it, 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 it proved Einstein's theory that the universe was expanding apart and independent from Einstein and independent from his calculations. It proved it by sight. He could see it with his massive telescope. It was expanding by the red light shift. And now Einstein was forced to deal with the truth. He said something to the effect, see if I, I thought I put it here on somewhere. I don't have it. He said something to the effect of, I see now the necessity of a beginning, right? He had, we got proved. He got, what's the word? He got owned. He got owned by his own theory. And then he had to come back out and say later that the theory, the, the cosmological <laughs> constant that he added, that matric was the biggest blunder of his entire career. And so from that point forward, I mean, there, were, there, was, there were many other things that proved that we live in a big bang universe. But from that point forward, there was really no doubt. The universe is not eternal. Now, remember what we said was there's only two things, there's only two options here. Either there was a creator and he has the power of existence in and of himself, or the universe itself is eternal and has the power of existence in and of itself. We can prove, we can prove down to five decimals with Einstein's theory that the universe is not eternal. And there are tons of other, I don't want to go into them all, but there are tons of other evidences that have come later. So what we have is an absolute fact now. As far as science can ever say that something is absolute, we can say that the universe is not eternal, which means something, remember the cosmological argument? Something had to be eternal. Something had to exist for all time to start everything else moving. So then we got to figure out what is that thing? I did want to just say one more thing. Uh, the radiation afterglow by Penzias and Wilson, that was kind of important. They posited, uh, and actually it was a guy named Gamow uh, from 30 years earlier, posited that if there was such a thing as a Big Bang, then there should be this radiation out in the universe. Now these guys are a whole lot smarter than me because I would have never even considered this as a possibility. But there's this radiation out there, and he actually figured somehow uh, that it would be at 2.7 degrees below or, or above uh, absolute zero. Now, if you take that temperature, you can equate it into a sound, into a hum, right? And they actually, this guy, these two guys, Penzias and Wilson, actually discovered the hum in the 60s, and it was at, it was at 2.7 degrees above absolute zero, and it's now universally accepted that among any sort of noteworthy scientists that there was a Big Bang, there was a beginning to the universe. Most scientists still hate that fact. But as C.S. Lewis said, uh, facts are, are stubborn things. Why the resistance? If these facts are so obvious, and if everybody should recognize this, then why is there so much resistance? Uh, I got a quote here on the bottom, uh, and that is the first quote I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two from that same man. This man was not a Christian. He said, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, that's interesting. He's lived by faith in the power of reason, not by knowledge. There's a philosophical decision to live by science, right? And for that scientist, the story ends like a bad dream. 
He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak and he pulls himself over the final rock and is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. This guy's not a believer. Why the resistance? He also said in an interview with Christianity Today, he observed, astronomers now find that they've painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened is a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientific fact. He's not a believer, and you got to go, well, why is he not a believer? Why the resistance? I go back to what we talked about before. Romans 1, it's 18 to 20. He didn't want to surrender. And I would submit to you that if it weren't for the Holy Spirit working in you right now, you wouldn't want to surrender either because we all want to be our own God. I don't want people telling me what to do. Right? All right. Page seven. Something has to be eternal. It is either the creator or it is the universe. Meaning, by the way, the universe, just so you know what they mean by that, they don't mean that this chair was eternal. They mean that the individuated elementary elements that make up this chair, the things subatomic are eternal. And somehow they just got moving through, and, and, and there was electricity that came from well, they don't know where and somehow they just started combining and they made up this chair. Good luck with that. Um, However, if it is the universe, we have a real problem because it seems clear that we can prove with absolute certainty or almost absolute certainty that the universe had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, what started it? In any cosmological inquiry, science plainly seems to point to a creator. But then we have another problem. Now we're accountable. If you have a creator, you belong to him. If you belong to him, you're accountable to him. So, uh, I've got there some resources that are really good. If you're interested in this stuff, uh, I owe a lot of what I've learned to a guy named Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's a phenomenally brilliant guy, but he's also done some stuff that is, I would say it's, it's, it's intended to be for high school students, but it's a little over most, most of the students in the class. I was watching it on DVD, they're like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. So it's a little above that, but it's, if you watch it three or four times, you'll get it. Uh, and that one's the third one from the left. That's Does God Exist? Uh, that's a DVD series. Uh, Does I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a pretty significant book if you're interested in learning about uh, cosmology or um, proving that God exists. That'd be great for you. Case for Creator comes in both a book and a DVD. Um, the book is obviously a lot more comprehensive, gives you a lot more information. It's a lot better, but the DVD actually has some information. Uh, they interviewed a guy named Jonathan Wells, who was a brilliant guy, and, and he has a lot of input that you don't get out of the book, so I'd advise that as well. Christian Apologetics by Norm Geisler. Um, brilliant man, responsible for much of what's going on in, in apologetics today. It's sort of a more advanced book uh, on apologetics, but if you're into this, uh, it's a good way uh, to start to reason toward a creator. We're going to take uh, a little bit of a break, and again, I just want to encourage you guys, if you have a question, stop us. Stop us midstream. I mean, I am hitting you with a lot of information. Some of it's philosophical, some of it's scientific, and some of it's difficult to grasp if you've not dealt with it before. The worst thing for me and Eric would be that you guys sit there and you don't ask a question, and when you leave here, you don't get what we're trying to teach you, because I can, I can guarantee you, if you learn the arguments we're teaching today, and you just get these, sort. I mean, you don't have to remember all the words. If you just remember the substance of these arguments, and maybe you glance over this booklet that you're going to take home with you a couple of times, you will be ready to enter a conversation with anybody. I've had conversations with people in PhD, with PhDs in physics, and I am no physicist. 
I've had conversations with people that have PhDs in philosophy. And in fact, one of them said to me what Eric's friends, it's full of contradictions, show me one. He has a PhD in philosophy and he was making huge mistakes philosophically as he was reading through the Bible. Not because I'm better trained, simply because I've already surrendered to the truth. And this guy refused to surrender the truth, so he refused to see the truth of what he was reading. And I've never had an encounter like that where somebody didn't walk away going, huh, hadn't thought about it like that. And I've never had an encounter, by the way, uh, from an apologetic standpoint where people walked away angry. Never. Now, that's different. If you want to talk to somebody about religion, you're going to have a fight. If you want to talk to them about abortion, you're going to have a fight. If you want to talk to them about apologetics, they'll walk away going, that was the most stimulating conversation I've had in a very long time. And it points them toward the Creator. We're going to take about a five-minute break.